Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. So from Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swelled around me, all your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Noah onto dry land. Now, Father, we do thank you that you do speak to us through your word. We pray now, Lord, as we sit before it, that sit under it, Lord, that you will uh, give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that are open to receive it. And may your spirit be at work teaching us and, and showing us uh, areas of our lives that we need to turn from our, our sin and turn to you uh, in, in humility, in surrender. I pray, Lord, that yeah, your spirit will be at work today as we, as we sit under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We heard earlier uh, from Eunice this story about Dom, and as I was hearing that story about Dom, I was uh, thinking a lot about what it would be like if I was in his shoes. I don't know how you felt when you were hearing that story. I think for us in in the in the Western uh, in our Western society, it's easy for us to to go uh, to to think about and hear these stories and feel a, a sense of sadness. But if we were in his shoes, if we're in Dom's shoes, living in Cambodia to where he started, how would you have felt? Uh, you live in poverty. You have a family to support. You're a farmer, poor farmer. You'd feel desperate, wouldn't you? How can I provide for my family? How can I look after them? And this, this, uh, this Thai man comes along, comes over to your farm and says, hey, I've got an opportunity for you. Come work with me. Come to Thailand. There's the, the fishing industry where you can make lots of money, good money to support your family. How would you feel? How would you respond? Dom, he heard this, and he went, this is great news, great opportunity. I'm going to go. I'm going to go make some money for my family. I'm going to pay off my debts. I'm going to support my family. So he took the job. He went to to Thailand, and and he gets onto this boat, and everything changes. What he thought was a great job, a great opportunity, becomes a living hell for him. He realizes he's, he's lost his freedom, that he's stuck out at sea thousands of kilometers offshore. How would you feel? How would you feel if you were in Dom's shoes? I, I, you know, I heard the story before Eunice told, uh, told it today, and I was thinking to myself, if I was in Dom's shoes, I would be scheming, 
thinking about my escape. Every day I'd be planning it. I'd, you, know, you know, in those movies where you see people draw, you know, those, um, you know, on the wall and, you're, and you know, or prison break where you got the, you know, a map on your body, whatever, you, whatever it takes. How do I escape these thugs, these slave masters? What would you do if you were Dom? Six years he spent on that boat in slavery. What would drive you to fight back? What would drive you to find an escape plan? What would you do? Team up with others? Overthrow them? Jump overboard, perhaps, and swim as far as you can, trying just to survive? How desperate do you need to be to, for your survival? How desperate would you feel to be, to, to be free? How desperate would you feel for salvation to come? I don't think any of us have ever been in that position, have we? I mean, most of us here have never felt uh, enslaved under uh, slave masters trapped on a boat for six years away from our families. None of us have been trafficked like he has, but have you ever felt perhaps that desperation in your life? Or a, a hint of it at least? I, I think for us as Christians, sometimes we, we forget that uh, often we are in need of salvation. That even I don't want to downplay Dom's situation and his physical slavery, but have you ever felt that emotional slavery in life? Have you ever felt enslaved at a spiritual level where you're just running around in circles, where you feel trapped, you feel stuck, you can't get out of your head? Have you ever felt that slavery to your emotions, to your thoughts, to your circumstances? Everything is just going haywire. For the Christian in the room, have you ever felt enslaved to your sin, where there is no escape? There is nowhere to turn. Have you ever felt that same desperation, the need for salvation for your soul? I know I have. And I know for many of us, we've felt desperate at times, and we find ways to numb the pain, to resort to options as if they'll save us too, to turn to, say, substances or alcohol to turn to our addictions, to binge watching, to binge scrolling on social media or online shopping, to turn to relationships and sex, to our wealth and our possessions, but then find ourselves sinking deeper and deeper. Where will, when will salvation come? For my soul. You see, Jonah's passage here today comes as a prayer and insight into his heart, but it's also a mirror to ours. And I hope as we unpack it today, we'll be pointed to our deepest and desperate need for our salvation and where we can find it. If you weren't here last week, if you missed last week, let's recap the narrative so far. Jonah is a prophet. Uh, that means God has spoken to him and he has a message, a word of God to give to the people. His word is to be given to God's enemies, Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, that's Israel's enemies, and to speak against them. He's calling them to repent of their wicked ways. And so Jonah, he's thinking, what? I have to go to Nineveh? I have to go to my enemy's territory and tell them to repent, to believe in God? That's crazy. Jonah, uh, a man of status, a man who's living in the king's court, he hated that idea. He hated the idea so much that he got on a boat. Chapter 1, he ran in the other direction. He got on a boat to Tarshish, a city which is basically on the other side of the known world for him, as far from Nineveh as he could go. But as he got on the boat, what happened? A storm happened. A ferocious storm that threatened the lives of all on board. A storm that God sent and led to, it led to a bunch of, of pagan sailors on the boat, people who don't worship God, to realize who is in charge and who they should be worshiping. And I love how chapter 1 finishes. 
Chapter 1 finished with these pagan sailors, these these non-believers, right, turning to our God in fear and awe and worship, making vows and sacrifices to him. And, And we were left with Jonah, in, desperate, in a desperate attempt to escape God and, and thrown overboard into this, to, to calm the raging storm around him. That's where, we're left. That's where we left off last week. In verse 16, 17, verse 17. Have your Bibles open with me. We're going to unpack this together. What do we discover? Verse 17, chapter 1, it says this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's, let's, let's address this, all right? The big whale in the room, elephant in the room. Um, there's a big fish. That's what it says, okay? I think a lot of us imagine whale when they hear of Jonah, but it could have been a whale. It says a big fish. Let's, let's, I might use whale. Actually, let's talk about it being a whale. I think that's easier to imagine, right? A big whale. Uh, maybe it's some prehistoric giant fish that lives in the very depths of the oceans. We don't know. But the issue, right, that we have before us, is this even possible? I, I, I'm, I'm thinking we're all thinking that. Is this even possible that a big fish could swallow a man whole and that man could survive for three days and three nights? Uh, I, I saved you some time. I went and Googled this. I went and Googled this this week, and there are stories. Wow, there are stories that have been told over the years of people who have survived living in the belly of a whale. The most famous story is this one. It's uh, a guy called James Bartley in the 1800s. Right? There were news articles about him. Uh, it, it was said that his ship was destroyed by a large sperm whale that swallowed him whole. He was inside the whale for 36 hours before uh, the other sailors caught this whale, cut the whale open to find him inside still alive. His skin was bleached by the gastric juices and he was blind for the rest of his life. 36 hours, not quite three days and three nights, but he was known as the modern day Jonah. George Orwell, the, the English author, some of you guys have read his books, 1984, one of them. He actually re- references Bartley, James Bartley, in, in one of his books. There's another guy, Luigi Mar- Marquez, a Spanish sailor, caught in a bad storm off the coast of Spain. He was drowned and got swallowed up by a whale. It was reported that he, was, he survived in the belly of the whale by eating raw fish, and the light from his watch kept him, kept him going. He was gone for three days and three nights. Now... How do you feel about those thoughts? I mean, did you were they believable? After a while, investigations happened into both. I mean, both these stories, and they were discovered that both of them were fabricated. No one true. I know you want them to be true, don't you? Uh, so Lu- Luigi Marquez was only 2016. That happened really recently. So that was just a tale that someone told, and it got into the news somehow, and the news had to sort of retract it, like it's not true. Um, and the same thing with James Bartley in the 1800s. It made it to a newspaper back then, and it wasn't true. Now, if you actually look into it, you ask biologists, there's a lot of articles out there on Google as well that will tell you if a whale did swallow you whole, which is possible, you, couldn't get swallow- you can get swallowed by a whale, you wouldn't survive. You wouldn't survive in the belly because there's no clean air to breathe. You'd be breathing in methane methane gas, right? If I heard any story today about a man living three days in the belly of a fish, we should all be skeptical of that. We all should be. Now, while that might be the case, the narrative we have in front of us is about a prophet, a man who's been called by God directly. And we have to consider who is this God? A God who has created the world out of nothing. A God who can send a flood and order every animal to get on board an ark. 
a God who can control the natural elements and send plagues like he did with, with Moses during Moses' day in Egypt. Uh, he, a God who can protect the prophet Daniel from a blazing furnace and the den of lions. We believe in a God, Christians, we believe in a God who has brought Jesus back from the dead. With my understanding of a God who can perform miracles and the supernatural, I have no problem believing he can order even a big fish, direct a big fish, a whale-like creature, to swallow a man and keep him alive for three days and three nights, and then vomit him up on the shore. If we believe God is God, I have no reason not to believe that this is a true story. It was a story that was passed down from generation to generation even, to the point where Jesus himself told that story to people, to the crowds, that Jonah was a man who lived three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. But while all the kids' Bible stories, and if you grew up at church, would have told you about Jonah and this big whale that swallowed him up, uh, that's not really the focus of this passage, is it? I want you to address that first, but the fish itself comes up twice in this whole section, in the whole book of Jonah. It comes up twice in four chapters. You see, the focus is really on the one who sends the fish, who commands the fish, who calls the fish to swallow him up, and then calls, him to vom- calls the fish to vomit Jonah up as well. It's about God, isn't it? This passage is about God and his grace for this man. Jonah is running away from God. He tells the sailors to throw him into the sea in the hope that he'll probably die. He wants to die. He wants to, he wants to run away from all his problems. What should we expect? We should expect that he goes to his watery grave. We should expect death. Rebellion against God should result in death. And I don't think anyone uh, was thinking Jonah's going to be rescued. There's a ferocious storm going on. If you're going to get thrown overboard, you're probably going to die. The sailors were worried about that. They didn't want to throw him overboard. But he was running away from God. He says, throw me overboard into the sea. The sea that man, in ancient Israel, the sea represented what? It re- represented the unknown. It represented chaos. It represented darkness. Jonah doesn't expect to live. But in chapter 1, verse 17, what do we read? God provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. We should expect death. When people reject God, it leads to death. God has every right to abandon him even, to let him drown and die there in the sea. But what do we see? We see God's unrelenting mercy, don't we? He saves Jonah. He provides a huge fish to swallow him up. We see a God who's pursuing Jonah's heart. And it's not until Jonah sinks into the bottom of the sea that he realizes his need for God's mercy, his desperate need for God's grace. That point of hitting rock bottom inside the belly of a fish that Jonah finally shows some remorse, some repentance, and surrender before God. He prays, doesn't he, inside the fish. In the last chapter, we heard about the sailors. They finished, they, we finished that chapter with them praying to our God. We haven't heard anything about Jonah praying yet. Here in chapter 2, this is where Jonah turns to God in prayer. First time we hear about him turning to God in prayer so far in the narrative. Let's read again his prayer from chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah, from inside the fish Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my, distress, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me, and I I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. 
The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Sounds so dramatic, doesn't it? But we've got this personal prayer from a man who is aware, really, of his guilt. Jonah, uh, there are elements in this prayer where he, he's owning his sin. He knows God is behind the judgment of his rebellion. It wasn't a storm that came out of nowhere. It was a storm that was sent by God. It, was the sailors who, it wasn't the sailors who threw him overboard. They were the instrument by which God used to punish Jonah. That's why he says, God, you hurled me into the seas, into the depths. Your waves, your breakers swept over me. I have been banished from your side. And, and, and Jonah's getting something right here, isn't he? He has this big view of God. The God who's our creator, the God of providence, who governs all things, has planned out all things. It was God who, in his justice, threw him into the water. That's what he deserved. That's what he deserved for his rejection of God. But do you see how Jonah only recognizes this once he hits rock bottom? <laughs> the deep surrounded me, so low in the sea that he, got, he gets tangled up in seaweed. At the roots of the mountain, he sank down. Wow. There's this feeling there that we're, we're hearing. He's, I mean, it, is, it sounds dramatic, but it's this desperation. It's this hopelessness. I can imagine, like, let's put ourselves in his shoes. There is no salvation coming for you. you you're at the bottom of the ocean. You're doomed. You're, you, you'd feel hopeless, wouldn't you? Uh, there's a film that came out years ago, and, I, and when I was reading this, I was thinking about this film, Gravity. I don't know if you guys watched it with Sandra Bullock, but it was about how she's stuck in space. It's one of those movies, low budget, just one scene. You're in space the whole time for these two hours, and I don't know why I watched it. At the end of it, I was like, that goes two hours of my life. But she's in space. The spaceship gets damaged. She's out there trying to fix this spaceship with this, you know, she's tethered to the ship in her space suit. This flying rock comes out of nowhere and it detaches her from the ship. So she's floating now out in space. She's, she's running out of oxygen. And then the movie ends. Right? There is no happy ending. There's no relief, no resolution to the problem. And you're just left thinking, well, I guess she's, she's dead. <laughs> That's it. Uh, she has to face her death. Her fate has been sealed. And the movie puts us in the shoes of the character. And I'm not going to lie, right? I, I felt that. I watched it, and yeah, I was disappointed. But at the same time, I felt that hopelessness. I'm like, oh, man, that's sort of sad. No one's coming for you. <laughs> the Calvary's not coming. Your, your fate's been sealed. You've got to accept that all that's left is, is darkness that surrounds you. And those movies never feel any good, but they're real. They, they get nominated for awards for some reason because they, I think, make us feel the hopelessness in the face of death. And for Jonah here, he's being poetic in his prayer. At the, at the roots of the mountain, he sank down, seaweed, seaweed wrapped around his head. It's a description of how low he's gone. Remember who this guy is. He's a prophet in the king's court, most likely highly respected, living in some sort of luxury. Here he is in the depths of the sea, facing death with nothing, with no hope. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder, when we think about God, does our theology, our belief about God, does our knowledge about God have room for moments like this? That sometimes God brings us to a place where we feel like we've hit rock bottom, where we have nowhere else to turn, where we feel desperate, where we're all alone, and the darkness overwhelms you. And perhaps we need to consider a couple of things. That we've been running from God for too long in our rebellion, and or that God wants us to be in that place.
so we'll see our need for him. This is from the belly of the fish that Jonah prays. Uh, A pastor in the U.S., Crawford Lawrence, he says, "Uh, the belly of the fish, it's not a great place to live, but it's a great place to learn. And when you're totally out of options, when you try to fix everything and you realize you're not in control and you're at the end of your, your tether, your rope, isn't it those moments that we cry out to God? And how often do we hear about that with people who are, who are feeling so desperate, desperate for some solace, desperate to be rescued from their situation? They don't know where else to turn to but to get on their knees and to pray. I hear this from people who aren't even religious, my, my non-Christian friends that are desperate. They, they don't know what else to do, so they try praying. They tell them, Mike, I tried praying. Oh, really? Who are you praying to? You know? Did he hear you? Like it's, it's crazy, but that's what people do when we're desperate. When you've run out of options, you turn to God. Why is that? Sometimes we need to understand, like, this is what desperation brings. This is what desperation does to, us, to a person. It makes you think, wow, there are, oh, let's hope that there's a supernatural God out there, a divine God that's listening. My question for Jonah is, why aren't we crying out to God in the good and the bad? And I look at Jonah, I'm like, wow, he reminds me of someone. He reminds me of me. (laughs) Isn't it so like us as humans to put ourselves on the pedestal thinking, we've got this, we're smart, I've got got this all together, I'm in control. We think we can do anything. But then the circumstances around us show us we aren't. We we don't got this. (laughs) We're at the mercy of, of a virus, of the financial market. We're at the mercy of our emotions that we can't control. Isn't it so common for us to look like Jonah too? That we'll turn to prayer when we're desperate, when we find ourselves in the belly of the fish. When we, when we need something, or when we need something. But at other times, we, we cruise through life without giving God a second thought. If I were God, I wouldn't have the patience for a guy like this, a guy like me. So it's a good thing I'm not God. <laughs> but God's mercy, by God's mercy, he listens and he hears his prayer. God's unrelenting mercy is on display. Jonah's prayer is one of desperation. It seems that at some points, right, it, it sounds self-centered, like woe is me, but it's one where he's aware of his sin, the judgment he deserves. Sure, it's when he hits rock bottom, but he sees a God that's worthy of worship. And so like Jonah, God will allow us, even humble us, to hit rock bottom sometimes, because it's only then when we're going to turn to God. Honestly, when we look at the, all, the four chapters, and I don't want to spoil it for you, but the four chapters in view, this is probably Jonah's best moment. Honestly, he's got this moment of awareness, clarity. Oh, I need to turn to God. Oh, I need to pray to him. I need to turn to his holy temple. Those, those words, right? Uh, the temple, the holy temple, that's where God's presence is. He goes, I need to turn back to that. He finishes the prayer, and these are, these are great words. Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who, who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of great, grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. See, this is the best part. He acknowledges God's love, God's mercy, God's salvation. He's stuck in the belly of a fish, but he knows that repentance, what repentance means, isn't just admitting our guilt. It's turning back to God. 
Now, he might be referring to the sailors in chapter 1 when he says, you know, there are those who cling to worthless idols, you know, idols made out of stone and, and wood. If we worship anything other than God, we're, we're turning away from him. We're turning away from God's great love, he says. I don't know what it looks like for you today, what your idols might be. When we bow down to, say, materialism or wealth or status and success, we, we, we worship these blind and mute counterfeit gods, hoping, our purpose, hoping we'll find purpose, meaning, and satisfaction. But when we do that, we're actually turning away. We're losing out on the thing we need most. Jonah recognizes that. We're missing out on God, on his great love. Jonah himself recognizes he needs to turn away from his own idol of comfort. Whatever it is that he's running away to, to run, run from God to, instead run back to God and his love. And so we're reading these, this prayer and we're unpacking it, but we're, we're seeing these hints, aren't we, of his heart, his faith. The, the big picture of who God is. God is his rescuer, his savior, the one who brings him out of the pit, out of his watery grave. I think we need to really appreciate that, to feel that. Because what Jonah does at the end of chapter 2, what does he finish with? Well, we're seeing an echo of what the sailors did in chapter 1. Jonah finishes with vows, and he desires to sacrifice to God, just like the sailors did. But for Jonah, it takes him to hit rock bottom, the bottom of the ocean, to realize that this God is the God who is merciful, the God who does save, the God of salvation, a God of relentless mercy. He needs saving from his circumstances, yes, but deep down, he knows he needs saving from his sin, and he needs to turn back to God. See, this change of heart, as reluctant as we discover he'll be, uh, he, he actually goes back on shore, and he'll, he'll go to Nineveh. He'll drag his feet to Nineveh, but he'll go to Nineveh. And we're going to keep reading about how, even though he still doesn't like the Ninevites, he's going to bring God's word to them. But here we see his heart, a heart of repentance and faith. Salvation comes from the Lord. I need us to understand something. If we believe salvation comes from the Lord and the Lord alone, we too need to turn to God in repentance. Have faith, yes, turn away from your idols, turn, uh, turn away from our moralism even, our good works, they can't save you. You no longer live for you, we get to live now for our Lord, for Jesus, because it's Jesus and him alone who saves us. Jonah's failures and his desperation is meant to lead us to the one who can save us in our desperation. See, the real hero of the story isn't Jonah, it's, it's Jesus. The greater Jonah who brings us out of the pit of despair. He lifts us up out of the pit of death itself and gives us life. The Jesus who went to his death and was raised in his resurrection brings us where? To, to God's temple, to God's presence, to the presence of God. Do we know that we're in need of that rescue? Is, it, is, is God who is Jesus who we turn to when, we fit, when we're feeling desperate? You know, this prayer has these bookends. And that's why we read from 1 verse 17 to 2, 10. And each bookend, we see the Lord at work. The Lord provided the big fish to swallow up Jonah. The Lord commanded the fish to vomit Jonah up. Jonah's probably covered in vomit. He looks probably gross. <laughs> because he's not the hero of the story. The Lord is. The big player in this chapter is God, who's powerful and patient, pointing us to Jesus. When we come to the New Testament, we see that. Matthew 12, 38 to 40. I'm going to read this for us. You can turn to it in your Bibles uh, if you can keep up with me. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 40. It says this. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. 
He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Spoiler alert. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus. See, Jonah was physically rescued. He got rescued by a big whale. He didn't face death that day. He fell into the water, but he should have had death. He should have been given over to death. The thing about Jesus is he voluntarily went into the depths of the sea. He went into the belly of the fish, the heart of the earth, to his death. He faced death. He experienced the punishment we deserve, but he didn't stay dead. It's through the power over death and sin that we can now have life. He is the greater Jonah. And he calls us to turn to God to repent, to turn to God in faith. The big fish and the cross of Jesus isn't so different. The fish was a sign of salvation for this one man. The cross, though, is a sign of salvation for every man and every woman. Jonah was in the fish for his own sin, but Jesus went to the cross for our sin. Jesus didn't face death that day, though the, the, the fish, uh, Jonah didn't face death that day. The fish was his salvation. Jesus faced death and suffering. He went there willingly, so you and I could have salvation. Isn't that beautiful? Can we see that Jesus is the greater Jonah? This is the miracle that we're all looking for in our desperation. If God has shown you your sin and you've owned your guilt and have turned and brought it before God in trust, turning to Jesus and surrendering before the cross, that itself is the miracle. God wants you to see him, his bigness, his greatness, and his patience and his mercy. And that's why Jonah's story is here for us. This is why this chapter is here for us in the Bible. To read it, to feel it, and to see the big God at work in Jonah's life the one who's bringing people, rebels like Jonah, rebels like you and I, before the cross. But maybe you're here and you don't think of yourself as much of a rebel or a sinner guilty before God. I think the temptation for many of us is that we do have it all together. We look at our lives and we compare it to those out on the street and we think, hey, I'm doing all right. I'm actually a good person by general standards. And we look at Jesus and we think, oh, well, I'll be a Christian because Jesus gives me good morals and he teaches me good stuff and I can be a better person in the world, perhaps. And perhaps the call for you, if that's you in the room today, maybe we need to see that God isn't pursuing you for your good works or your morality. He wants your heart. He wants to see your dependence and faith and reliance and trust on him. We all need to be honest with ourselves, don't we? We need to see how far we've run from God and distance ourselves from him Sin separates. Don't wait till tragedy or rock bottom to realize this. Our sin is subtle. And too often we drift with the current of the sea, the sea of of culture that leads us further and further away from God. Let's take a look at ourselves and where our heart is. Have you drifted? It's time to own our sin. I know it's so easy. We look around at our circumstances and we cry out to God when, when there are great problems in our lives. But that's not the great problem. Our circumstances aren't the biggest problem in your life. The great problem in your life is your sin and my sin. We need to own that. We can't let pride sweep it under the rug. We can't let our arrogance say, well, at least I'm not as bad as the person next to me. I do all these good things. I'm good. 
Don't let your self-righteousness blind you from your deepest need that you and I need saving from our sin. Turn to God. Look to the cross. It's not too late. God wants your heart. God is calling you to see him and the rescue that comes from his hand. I love what uh, Tim Keller, the author and pastor in the U.S., he says about this idea of rescue. He writes, Jesus is not so much a teacher as he is a rescuer because that's what we most need. Nothing in who we are or what we do saves us. We need to ask. We did not ask to be rescued, but God in his grace planned what we didn't realize we needed. And Christ, by his grace, came to achieve the rescue we could never have achieved ourselves. For others in the room, you might, have, you might feel so far from God that God wouldn't even dare go near you, that he wouldn't have time for you. You look around and you think, man, I need to clean myself up to fit in with God's church, to fit in with this crowd. If I can clean up my life, then God will save me too. But friends, that's not how the gospel of grace and mercy works. God extends his invitation of love to you and I because of who he is, not because of what we've done, not because of how clean we look or how perfect our life is. It's like saying, God is going to send me a lifeboat, but I need to swim to the shore first. You can't. You can't swim to the That's why he needs to send you the lifeboat. God saves people who cannot save themselves. And that's all of us. Just like Dom on the boat, we need a savior to come. The beauty of Jonah is that there's nothing he brings to the table. Jonah doesn't bring anything to the table. God sends a whale to, to swallow him up. The only requirement is that he acknowledges he has rebelled against God. That's the requirement for salvation. It's not clean up your act, be a morally good person, do good works, follow the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus will save you. No, it's nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. God sent a fish to swallow Jonah when he had hit rock bottom in his rebellion. God sent Jesus because you and I, even when we were his enemies, he died on the cross for us to save us. We can't save ourselves. We need a savior to rescue us. Without Jesus, we're dead in the water. So friends, do you see that? Do you feel that? Is that clear? If it is, there's no other heart response than one of praise and worship and love and thanksgiving. In the same way as Jonah, in the same way as the sailors from chapter 1, there's a, the response is one of praise, uh, one of making vows, one of making sacrifices for our Lord Jesus. God saves those who admit, confess, and turn to God in their desperation, knowing they can't save themselves. That's the beauty, that's the hope of the gospel that we have. Salvation comes from the Lord. You see, Dom's story, the Cambodian man who was trafficked into slavery, he lived in constant fear and terror for six years. But salvation did come for him. It's a beautiful story of freedom, of salvation. I love the work of IJM. I love that we support them as a church. And you know what? IJM, they believe in this idea of freedom and salvation because, it, because, because they know a God who has brought salvation and freedom to them. See, we go through life, and most of us in the room, God willing, won't be in that situation, sold into slavery. But we need to be aware that we are in that same enslavement to our sin, that we ourselves need salvation too, that too often we allow ourselves to get caught up by the current, sinking deeper and deeper and further and further away from God. We can't save ourselves. We need our Savior. Will you turn to Jesus? And like Jonah, own your sin, 
confess with your heart, turn and trust Jesus with your life, knowing the same truth as Jonah, that salvation comes from the Lord. Let's pray for that now. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that even in our sin, in our brokenness, in our mess, that you see us and you love us and you show us your mercy. Rebels who don't deserve your love and grace, you shower that upon us with, with Christ and his love. You shower that upon us with, with Christ who, who, who came into our world, who left his position of comfort and status to be amongst us, to walk amongst us, to serve us to the point of dying on the cross. We thank you for the cross, Lord. We thank you for uh, the life that we have in here. And we pray, Lord, as we uh, consider that, consider the freedom and salvation we have now. Help us to live uh, with that in mind. Being a people, Lord, who, who are repentant, who own our sin and turn away from our sin and keep turning and help, help us to keep turning back to you by your spirit that helps us. Uh, we pray for that, Lord, and we pray that uh, as we do that, Lord, that we'll be a shining light to those around us as we bring the gospel, as we live the gospel. I do pray this for our church. In Jesus' name, amen.